let me encourage you to turn again this morning to the book of Job, chapter 3, Job 3. It isn't a typo, by the way. A couple of you called me or emailed me during the week to say, are you sure you're going to cover 35 chapters? And we are. And um, if you've read the book of Job or if you... Um, just follow along this morning. You'll see why we're going to cover all these chapters uh, in just in two weeks, both today and next Sunday, Lord willing. But before we do that, let's ask the Lord for his help. Father, we do look to you for help now. We just finished singing that we were so lost that we should have died and you have brought us to your side and that you lead us, not with a literal staff and rod, but with your word. And so we pray now that you lead us with your word and that you do point us to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes we make the mistake of reading the Bible as though it were merely interesting religious literature and don't actually place ourselves mentally and or emotionally into the rough and tumble of what's really going on on the pages. And we can especially make that mistake when we turn our attention to these middle chapters of the book of Job. Job 3 through 37, and I say this reverently, is one of the most tedious portions of scripture that we can find. 35 solid chapters of Job and his friends arguing and arguing and arguing some more. And so it's easy to read these chapters and get a little bit tired of it all, maybe even bored with it. And perhaps that's part of God's design for us in reading this, to get a sense of the tedium of the the head butting that was going on between Job and his friends and and also the tedium of many of the arguments and soapboxes that we get ourselves into. But I say again that part of the difficulty we have in keeping our concentration in certain parts of the Bible, like these chapters, is because we don't always really place ourselves mentally or emotionally into the context. For instance, if you read Job 3 through 37, and just picture him and his friends sort of sitting around the dinner table, debating theological points, and theoretical ideas, then I can see how you would become bored very quickly with these chapters. But that's not at all the setting in which Job and his friends find themselves in these middle chapters of the book. They're not sitting on lounge chairs with the smell of freshly brewed coffee wafting through the room debating theological minutiae. They're actually sitting around an ash heap. And Job himself is sitting on the ash heap both as a symbol of his mourning over his ten dead children and probably as a primitive form of relief for the open sores that cover his body. Chapter 2, verse 7, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And the smell that's on the breeze is not Colombian blend. It is rotting flesh as Job has been stricken with this great disease. And all of that should make us, I hope, sit up and pay attention to this long conversation, tedious as it sometimes feels. 
The questions and arguments, the points and counterpoints that Job and his friends are making are not simply theoretical. Job has lost nearly everything. His ten children are buried beneath the rubble of his oldest son's house. Job's wife has turned her back on him. Job has lost all of his wealth, most of his servants, and on top of that, now he has bandages all over his face and arms and feet and legs. And to keep the itching down, he has gray soot smeared every place in between. So Job and his friends aren't dealing here in theory. This isn't a classroom debate. This is four men with a fifth sitting carefully and quietly on the edge of the circle trying to reconcile the real-life calamity of Job and his family with the goodness and justice of Almighty God. This is real life. I hope that makes it interesting to you, especially as you prepare for the Job-like moments that may be lingering like storm clouds on the horizon of your own life. And I would also note that if you can place yourself into this scene this morning on the ash heap, not only will the theological discussion become more interesting to you, but so will the dynamic of these friendships. So let me just help you get into the picture here just a little bit. Modernize it for you. If Job were living today with the disease with which he's been stricken in chapter 2, he wouldn't be obviously lying on an ash heap. He'd be lying on a hospital bed. Perhaps in the hospital itself, perhaps one of those ones that you wheel into your living room. But that's where Job would be. And perhaps tubes would be, would be coming out of and going into various parts of his body. Nurses or his wife would be coming in and out of the room, bringing various things and checking various things. And he would still have bandages and ointment all over his body. And this is the place where a grand 35-chapter-long argument is going to take place. This is the place where Job's friends are going to begin to make accusations against him and call him names on his sickbed while he's lying in the hospital bed, while he's lying on the ash heap. It's really quite remarkable when you put yourself in the scene. How callous would a person have to be to walk into the hospital room and begin assailing a man's character and tearing him to pieces? That's what's happening here. And I hope that makes these otherwise tedious chapters a little more vivid for you. It does for me. And I hope that that you'll keep the scene, the ash sheep, the bandages, the groans. Keep all that in mind as we work our way through these chapters over the next two weeks. This really is one of the most interesting and strange conversations in the Bible. And though I hope you've already done so or will do so on your own, We don't have time, of course, this morning to read this entire long 35-chapter section. So we're going to look at various bits and pieces of this not-so-friendly argument and look at them directly as we go along today and next week. But let me just now give you sort of the Cliff's Notes version, as it were, of Job 3 through 37. What's really going on here since we don't have time to read it all? Well, as Job lost his wealth and his servants and his family and his health in chapters 1 and 2, somehow word traveled across the open plains and the villages of the ancient Near East. And therefore, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, got the terrible news and began to pack their bags for the land of Uz. And you can read about them in the last three verses of chapter 
too. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. They came initially at least to comfort Job, to sit in the ashes with him, to feel his pain and in some way to try to alleviate his pain. So far, so good. But in chapter 3, Job, who up until this point has been patient in his soul and cautious with his lips, begins to speak as many of us begin to speak when calamity strikes us and particularly when we've had some time for the initial shock to wear off. He had responded so well in chapters 1 and 2. But as his misery wore on for months, Job began to struggle with disillusionment in chapter 3. And John Piper in his series on, on the book of Job describes quite well, I think, how a person could do so well when the, when the blow strikes and then come to struggle as the suffering goes on. Listen to what he says. Soldiers have been known to get a leg blown off by a landmine and run on the raw stump back to safety, but then cry like a baby at the pain of surgery and healing. There is a spiritual counterpart to this physical phenomenon. In the stunned moment of tragedy, many a Christian has been given the grace to sustain the burden with a genuine word of faith. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But then later, under the relentless sequence of empty rooms and chairs and shirts and arms, the Christian collapses in sobs of baffled dismay. In other words, God seems to give grace when the blow strikes so that we sometimes respond so well at the beginning, but as time goes on, it gets harder. And thus it was with Job. His faith was strong when the landmines blew up in chapters 1 and 2. But then months of misery and recovery and sickness finally wore him down. And so we read that chapter 3, verse 1, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And he did so all throughout chapter 3 in quite vivid and stout terminology. Why didn't I die at birth, he asks in verse 11. Come forth from the womb and expire. And then he gets even more serious in verse 16 as he wonders aloud if it wouldn't have been better if he had been a miscarriage and never lived to see all the calamity that's befallen him. He's quite upset in these chapters. And though we don't desire to imitate him, and though we don't necessarily congratulate him for his words of despair and hopelessness, we don't do that for a moment. But we do, I think, understand his words, don't we? Which of us, when faced with real difficulty, hasn't thought at least for a moment like Job thought? Which of us, if we've really had the worst day of our life, hasn't thought just for a moment, I think it might be better just to be dead than to have to face what I face this day. And if we've never thought that way, it's either God's amazing grace or it's that we haven't yet faced the worst day of our life. 
So though they may not have been Job's best thoughts or words, and though we may not have agreed with them were we sitting there on the ash heap, neither, I hope, would we condemn Job for them. For sometimes hurting people say things that they don't really mean, things that they know aren't exactly true. Job himself is going to tell us in chapter 6 that the words of one in despair belong to the wind. In other words, when somebody's in despair, don't take what they say seriously. But Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar couldn't quite recognize that fact. Indeed, far from understanding Job's lament, or at least setting it to one side as the unreasonable words of a broken man, Job's friends begin in chapter 4 to question his faith, to question his godliness, eventually to speculate on the reason for his suffering. This must be happening to you because you're so sinful, Job. And eventually they begin to ridicule him and accuse him. And that's how the long, drawn-out quarrel ensues. And you can outline the squabble that these men have really in three sections. The first cycle or section takes place in chapters 4 through 14. Eliphaz speaks in chapters 4 and 5. Job replies in chapters 6 and 7. Bildad speaks in chapter 8. Job replies in 9 and 10. Zophar speaks in chapter 11. Job replies in chapters 12 through 14. Each one speaks and Job replies. And then the same thing happens in chapters 15, 22. They continue arguing amongst themselves in the very same order. Eliphaz in 15, then Job in 16 and 17, then Bildad in 18, then Job in 19, then Zophar in 20, then Job in 21. And then the cycle repeats a third time in chapters 22 to 31. Only this time Zophar has nothing left to say. Eliphaz speaks in 22, Job speaks in 23 to 24, Bildad replies in 25, and then Job finishes out the conversation in chapters 26 through 31. Round and around and around in circles with the same pattern every time. I think it's that way for a reason. God is is showing us that they were just going around and around and around. And in all those chapters, this is important, you will notice that while they began to chastise Job simply for his rash words in chapter 3. They began to say, Job, all this talk about you wish you were dead, what are you thinking? Probably that even wasn't wise. But that's how they began. But then the argument very quickly turns into a court case with Job in the dock and his friends trying desperately to prove all through these chapters that Job must be suffering so greatly because of some hidden and unrepentant sin in his life. And then Job argues back that he's innocent. And then the next person steps up to the witness stand and argues all the more that, no, it's true. You are suffering so much because of your sin. God wouldn't do this to you, they continue to argue, unless you had really provoked him to anger. And so the discussion goes all through chapters 4 through 31. That quarrel as to the reason for Job's suffering is really the key element in the middle portions of these books. So keep that in mind. And we'll come back to it in just a bit. And then finally, as these men run out of steam, the young man who's been sitting to the side listening, perhaps another friend of Job's, in chapters 20, or 32 through 37, this man named Elihu, who's been listening, can no longer keep silent at this argument. And so he bursts forth with six chapters worth of rebuke, sometimes helpful rebuke, sometimes not so helpful rebuke both for Job and for his friends. And there will be a thing or two we can learn both this week and next from listening to this young man, Elihu.
That's the long and winding road that we need to cover in the next two weeks. So rather than walking through these 35 chapters in order, or rather than trying to look at every single speech that Job and his friends make and comment on them all, I think it will be best for us to give one sermon to Job's side of the argument, to considering what he says, and then another to that of his friends. So next week, Lord willing, we're going to consider Job's side of things. We're going to ask ourselves, what did Job get right? And then on the other hand, what did he get wrong? And today, with the time that we have left, I'd like to take a look at Job's friends and ask the same question of them. What did they do right? And what did they get so terribly wrong? So the rest of our time this morning will be devoted to answering those two questions and trying to learn from the answers. So then, first of all, what did Job's friends do right in this book? It is easy to be astonished when you read these chapters at the harsh treatment that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar heap upon their friend. Not as easy, but still important, we're going to need to notice that their theology was all out of whack in a couple of places, a number of places actually. But before we notice what they did wrong, before we do any of those easy things that are so important to see, it's also important to notice that in some ways, Job's friends were good friends. They did do some things right. There are some positive lessons we can learn from these three men, and I want to mention four of them to you. First, we should notice and admire that Job's friends came. They came, chapter 2, verse 11. When Job was in trouble, they were there for him. Now, we don't know much about the background of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, but the one thing we do know there from verse 11 is that they were from the regions of Teman and Shua and Namath. That is to say that these men were not Job's neighbors in the land of Uz. They lived at some distance from him. They lived in other regions, other countries, and they did that in a day when all travel was done either on foot or on the backs of donkeys and camels. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that each of these men may have traveled for days to get to Job and us. And that's significant. Though they messed up royally, when they got there, they cared enough about Job to put forth the effort to get there. They came. And surely there's a lesson in that for us, isn't there? No, we don't want to imitate the blunders that these men made in chapters 3 through 37, but we'll never have the opportunity to imitate their blunders or to learn from them unless we're actually there for our friends in the time of tragedy, unless we actually come. Sometimes it may mean traveling long distances. Sometimes it's just a trip to the local hospital or funeral home. But make sure, if God allows, that you come, that you go to your friend. Make sure that you're there for the jobs that God has placed in your life. Secondly, notice that Job's friends were right in that they mourned. Chapter 2, verse 12. They mourned. They weren't stoic as they arrived, but they joined with him in the grieving process. And while we may not actually join with them in tearing our robes and throwing dust over our heads, we can join these three men in our own culturally appropriate ways of grieving with our friends. And we need to ask God in those moments to give us grace to somehow, in some small way, feel their pain. 
and to be able to sit down in the ashes with them and to take the time and have the courage to weep with them, to pray with them, and just to be with them. And that idea of just being with them brings us to the third thing that Job's friends did right. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were right in that they kept silence in chapter 2, verse 13. They were right in that they kept silence. They sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. I doubt any of us have ever gone one day and one night without speaking words. If you have, you know it's difficult to do. For some of us more than others, of course. Um, Seven days. So we can think, oh, all the effort they put into criticizing and ridiculing Job. Think of the effort that went into seven days and seven nights just to be there and say nothing. And sometimes that's the best thing to do, isn't it? Sometimes the pain in someone's life is so great that what your friend really needs or what you really need is just for someone to be there in the room or by the bed with you. Sometimes small talk is really too much to bear when everything has turned into a train wreck. Sometimes reminders that brighter days are ahead, though that may be true, those reminders only sound hollow in the pain of the moment. And certainly the phrases, I told you this was going to happen, or, you know, there's a lesson in this, are almost always out of place at the side of the casket or in the hospital room. And yes, we need to offer verbally the hope of the scriptures to people and to pray for them, sometimes aloud. But even after we've done that, even after we've read Romans 8 or Psalm 23, and after we've prayed, what else really can we say to the family in the waiting room outside of the ICU or as we stand next to the casket? So Job's friends got it right. And we learn from them that once we've come and once we've mourned with our friends, sometimes silently sitting down on the ground next to him or her in the ashes is what they need most. And in the midst of calamity, Job tells us in chapter 13, verse 5, silence is often great wisdom. Fourthly and finally, I want you to notice that Job's friends were right as they attempted to magnify God's justice. They were right as they attempted to magnify God's justice. Part of the problem between Job and his friends in these chapters was that Job tended to think and to say out loud that he believed God was simply being arbitrary in allowing his suffering. He says a number of times that he feels that God has struck him down for no good reason, that God has been unfair to him. You can see that in chapter 9, verse 20, and chapter 10, verse 7, if you want to jot those down. And then Job, you may turn to this one, even says in chapter 19, verse 6, that God has wronged me. God has wronged me, he says. And as you or I might well be, Job's friends were quick to say to him, wait a minute now, Job. God is not unfair, as you're accusing him of being. God is not unjust. Don't go accusing God of wronging you. They were right to do that. They were right to think that way. And we see them doing so in places like chapter 5, 8 through 16, and, and chapter 8, verse 3. They say, wait a second, Job. God is, not, God is not sinister. God is not unjust. 
And we're going to notice, yes, in just a few minutes, that they were wrong in their application of God's justice. They were wrong in their understanding of God's justice and how it related to Job's suffering. But they were right to believe and to remind their friend that God never, ever acts unjustly. That God's not capricious, that God is not arbitrary, that there is a good reason behind everything that God does. They were right to notice those things. And I think that fact is often overlooked. I've overlooked it most times when I read through this book year by year. Even though Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar posited very wrong reasons why God had allowed Job to suffer, they were right to say that God does have reasons for everything that he does. Though they posited very wrong reasons for why it was that God was allowing Job to suffer, they were right to say that God does have reasons for everything he does. They were right to remind Job that God wasn't making sport of him, that God wasn't running over Job like some people do when they see a turtle crossing the county road just to hear the crunching sound. That's not God, they said. They were right to believe and to say that God wasn't capricious in his dealings with Job and isn't in his dealings with any of us either. They were right to defend God's character and his justice. But right as they were to do that, they made some terrible leaps of logic as well. And that's where we need now to turn our attention to the question, what did Job's friends get wrong? And they got a lot wrong. While it is true uh, that there is a great deal of material here in these middle chapters, and while it's true that there are three different friends, and some of what they say is slightly different in the saying, I do believe that basically all three of these men were saying and doing the same things. And so I believe that we can summarize the mistakes of Job's friends under two big, broad categories. So what did they get wrong first? We need to say that Job's friends were wrong in the tone of their response. I think that's obvious if you read these chapters, but it's worth noting. They were wrong in the tone of their response. Even if they thought what they said was correct, the way they said it was wrong. Eliphaz, in chapter 4, verse 2, begins carefully enough. He says, let me venture a word with you, Job. He doesn't jump on with both feet. He begins cautiously and even reminds Job there in chapter 4 of all the good that God has done through him. But as the argument continues and the words pass back and forth between Job and his friends, they get harsher and harsher. In fact, as wise as their silence had been in chapter 2, the pendulum now swings in the complete opposite extreme. Chapter 8, verse 2. Bildad calls Job's words a mighty wind. You're full of hot air, in other words. And Eliphaz in chapter 15, verse 2, speaks similarly. In chapter 11, verse 11, Zophar goes so far as to call Job a phony. All your religion is just fake, he says. And then in chapter 2, Eliphaz invents all sorts of fanciful accusations against Job. We'll come back to this, but you'll note that he begins calling Job a thief and a miser and one who crushes orphans. Their words were stout against Job. And I hope the folly of that is obvious. 
Even if you think you have a case against someone, even if you think someone really is full of hot air, even if you believe that they are a guilty wretch, as Job's friends clearly did, it's probably not the best strategy to go calling them names, especially when they're laying prone on the hospital bed or, in this case, on an ash heap. But all of us do this kind of thing sometimes, don't we? With our wives and our husbands and our children and our friends. We get so intent on winning the argument because we're right that we say things that we don't mean. And we say them in very wicked ways sometimes. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Only an idiot would say that. Does that ring a bell for anyone in this room? Harsh words? I'm sure it does. If it doesn't for anyone else, it does for me. Some of you are saying, tell me about it. Saying something louder and more forcibly doesn't make it right. And even if we are right, our tone can make us completely wrong. If not in what we say, certainly in how we say it. And so we can learn some things from Job's friends. And we can heed the word of the psalmist who prayed in Psalm 141, verse 3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. So the tone of Job's friends was all wrong. But so was the content of what they said. We know that what they said was also wrong, not just the way they said it, but we know that what they said was wrong. And we don't simply know that because Job didn't like what they had to say. For sometimes when people say difficult things to us, we don't like what they say. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong. So Job's rejection of his friend's wisdom by itself doesn't prove that they were wrong. But there are some other hints in this book that tell us that they were. That what they said was wrong. Most important among these is in chapter 42, verse 7. You should just look at it briefly. In chapter 42, verse 7, at the very end of the book, God tells us that Job's friends, quote, have not spoken of me what is right. God himself tells us that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were off base in their understanding of their maker. And we'll think about why that is in just a moment. But also, we learn that Job's friends were way off track in their arguments against Job from the speeches of this young man named Elihu in chapters 32 through 37. Apparently, between chapter 3 and chapter 31, Elihu is sitting off to the side of the ash heap, listening to all the hot air and all the monotony that's going back and forth between Job and his friends. And it's he who actually speaks up and closes out this series of arguments that we're considering this morning. And as I said before, there are some things that he says that aren't all that helpful and other statements that make a lot of sense. But the question is, why does he jump in in the first place? And why does the narrator record for us to read what he actually says? Well, I think because though Elihu didn't have all the answers to Job's problem or his friend's questions, he had listened to Job and his friends long enough, and we discover this in chapter 32, verses 1 through 3, that he had listened to them long enough to discern that even though he didn't have all the answers, they certainly didn't have all the answers either. 
And he tells us that Job was wrong in verse 2, and we'll return to this next week, 32.2. He tells us that Job was wrong because he tried to vaunt himself against God, because he attempted to argue that God was treating him unfairly, because, to put it in L.E.U.'s words, Job justified himself before God. We learn that from Elihu. Job's problem was that he justified himself before God. I'm doing right and God is not being fair with me. And as Elihu tells us in verse 3, Job's friends were wrong. And this is the point this morning. Job's friends were wrong because though they had talked long and hard, they had found no answer. Verse 3, and yet had condemned Job. In other words, Job's friends were wrong because they assumed that they knew why Job was suffering, but they couldn't prove it. They were wrong because they argued their case against Job vehemently, but had no real grounds for their accusations against Job. And that brings us to the second main way in which Job's friends got it wrong. They were wrong, first of all, in the tone of their response, but Job's friends were wrong, second of all, and most importantly of all, about the reason for Job's suffering. They were wrong about the reason for Job's suffering. I've said this to you before. If there is one theme that constantly runs through these arguments between Job and his friends, the theme is that Job's friends believed that the reason for Job's suffering, the reason for his loss of his wealth and his health and his ten children, was because Job must have had some hidden and unrepentant sin in his life. That's what his friends tell him over and over and over again. They could not conceive of a man suffering as Job did unless he had done something terrible to provoke the Almighty and to bring God's immediate judgment down upon his head. Indeed, we hear this in a number of places. Let me just show you a few of them to get a flavor for what they were saying. First, look with me at chapter 4. Verse 8, the words of Eliphaz, chapter 4, verse 8. He says to Job, According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. And Job had been harvesting a lot of trouble, hadn't he? Those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. In other words, he's saying, Job, the reason why you're reaping such difficulty has to be that you've been sowing iniquity and trouble. And then in chapter 8, verse 4, Bildad offers the same harsh kind of, quote, wisdom. Chapter 8, verse 4, he says, and you can imagine this after all that Job has gone through in the death of his children. He says, if your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. And the message is the same. Job, the reason why that tornado came, the reason why that house collapsed on all of your children's head is because they were so wicked. They must have done something to deserve that. They must have done something to provoke God. And then Eliphaz in chapter 22 continues the assault, this time with a great deal more imagination and in a much more harsh way. Chapter 22, listen to verses 4 through 11. Job 22, 4 through 11. Is it because of your reverence that he reproves you, that he enters into judgment against you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? 
For you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. To the weary you have given no water to drink, and from the hungry you have withheld bread. But the earth belongs to the mighty man, and the honorable man dwells in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Therefore, snares surround you, and sudden dread terrifies you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and an abundance of water covers you. You hear what Job's friends are saying to him, what Eliphaz is saying there? He's making all this stuff up. He's imagining what Job must have done. He's imagining all the dastardly things Job could have done to deserve the suffering. And what he's saying is basically this. The only reason why God would take away your wealth and your sons and your servants and your daughters and your health and your wife's support, the only reason why he would do that, Job, is if you have done something terrible to provoke him. And Job, we don't know what it is. We can think of lots of things that it might be. But from all appearances, you're a godly and upright man. And therefore, you must be hiding something. There's something that you're doing when we're not here to watch you, but God sees it, and God is judging you. That's the only reason why you would suffer. God doesn't let godly people suffer. That's what they were saying. God doesn't let godly people suffer, and they were wrong. Terribly, terribly wrong. Is it true that God doesn't let godly people suffer? Well, what would Joseph say about that as he languishes in Potiphar's dungeon for something that he didn't do? What would Moses say about God letting godly people suffer in the wilderness for 40 years? What would Daniel say as people were constantly trying to undermine him? What would Jim Elliot say? What would Helen Rosevere say as she's beaten and raped in the Congo for trying to tell people about Jesus? What would those Nigerian pastors, three of them who were recently beheaded by radicals in the north of Nigeria, say about Job's friends and their quote-unquote wisdom? And what would Jesus, God's suffering servant, say about Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar's maxim that people only suffer when they've done something terrible? Surely if God's own son, who knew no sin, could suffer then we know that the axiom of Job's friends is false and foolish. And even though they lived before the time of Christ, they should have known better. These men knew Job. They knew that what God said in chapter 2 was true. They knew that Job was upright and blameless. And yet, their carefully packed theological box didn't leave them room for the idea that someone like Job could suffer, that God might bring about difficulty for reasons other than retribution and punishment, that God might allow difficulty not always to judge us, but sometimes to teach us or to refine us or to prove our faith. And neither could they fathom the idea that God might allow suffering and never tell us exactly why. Job's friends had to have a solution. They were, remember, trying with good intentions to defend God's justice. They were responding to Job's equally false claim that God was treating him unjustly, that God was being cruel. So we'll cut them a little slack. They were trying to defend God from the accusation that he's capricious in allowing suffering, that he does so for no good reason. So their intent wasn't bad, at least at the beginning, but their theology was horrible. Their theology was horrible. 
And that in itself is a lesson to us. In the Christian life, intent is vitally important. You can do all the right things, but if you don't have a loving intent, you're a resounding gong and a a clanging cymbal. Intent is important. But Job's friends teach us that correct theology is also vitally important. And therefore, though we may have the best intentions in the world, if our theology is half-baked, we can ruin people. If our theology is robust, is not robust, I should say, and not full-orbed and not thorough and not radically biblical, we can break people, including ourselves, even when we're trying to help them. And that was the problem with Job's friends. Their theology was half-baked and it came down like a club on Job's sore-covered head. And what specifically was their theological problem? Well, in order to combat Job's claims that God was being capricious and unfair and doing wrong, they responded with the biblical truth and common sense notion that whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. That's all throughout the Bible. It makes common sense. Paul says it just like that in Galatians 6, 7. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And that's what they were trying to say to Job. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And that's a true statement. God doesn't allow iniquity to go unpunished. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And Job's friends rightly understood that. However, commentator David Atkinson rightly points out that these men erred by failing to recognize that the reverse is not necessarily true. In other words, though it is certainly true that whatever a man sows, this he will also reap, it is not necessarily true that whatever a man reaps, this he has necessarily sown. Let me say that again so you can hear it and think about it and let it sink in. That's the main point of these chapters at least from Job's friend's side of things. Though it is certainly true that whatever a man sows, this he will also reap, it is not necessarily true that whatever a man reaps, this he is also sown. In other words, despite the protests of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, it is not true that every bad thing that happens to us is necessarily a punishment for some evil that we have sown. You hear that? It is not necessarily true that every bad thing we reap is as a result of some bad thing we've sown. Now, we do reap what we sow, either now or in eternity. But we do not always sow the difficulties that we reap. If we behave wickedly, in other words, difficulty is inevitably the result, either now or in eternity. You reap what you So, but that does not mean that every difficulty comes as a result of acting wickedly. Job's friends knew the first principle that was biblical and right. If you act wickedly, judgment will come. But then they falsely assumed that the reverse was true. If judgment comes, or excuse me, not judgment, but just if difficulty comes, you must have acted wickedly. They made a leap of logic that's not biblical. Just because difficulty comes doesn't mean that you have sown wickedly. Now, that doesn't mean that we have any room to complain or that God is acting unjustly. 
if he gives us difficulty that we haven't sown. For all of us have plenty enough sin piled up on our rap sheets to render absurd any complaining about any difficulty we face. God is treating all of us better than we deserve, even when we're in the hospital bed. None of us, if we're still alive on this earth, is facing as much difficulty as our sins actually deserve. And yet it must be said that sometimes, sometimes we do reap difficulty that we have not specifically sown. It's not that we're without sin or that we don't deserve God's judgment, but that sometimes we reap difficulties that cannot be traced back directly to some bad thing that we did. In other words, some people get AIDS because of sexually promiscuous lifestyles, but other people are born with it, having done nothing specific to bring it on. Some people have car crashes because they're driving recklessly. Others have car crashes while they're driving the proper speed in the proper lane with their seatbelts on. So difficulty doesn't always come as a direct result of some specific sin. And we need to note that well. If you get cancer, it may be that God is chastising you for some specific sin. Maybe even a sin that's not physiologically connected with cancer. In other words, it may be that God is trying to get your attention about your marriage or about your integrity at work or about your eternal soul. And we need to be open to that possibility. But it doesn't have to be the case and often isn't that difficulty, cancer, car crashes, whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be the case that difficulty is always a chastisement for sin. And that's the point of Job 3 through 37. When you face difficulty, it could be that God is going to prove through your difficulty the potency of your faith in Jesus. It could be that he's going to prove something to the devil or to the world as he's doing in this book. Or it could be that God is going to use cancer to strengthen your faith or to make you long for heaven or to put you in the hospital room next to some poor soul that desperately needs to hear of Jesus. And the same could be said about broken clutches and pink slips and house fires and so on. It could be that God will use those things to chastise your sin or to get your attention. But it may well be that He'll also use them to test your faith or to prove the strength of your faith or to bring some long-term good that you can never even ask for or imagine. And all that will be true when your coworker, or your family or your neighbor or your enemy or your friend or your brother in Christ has these things happen to him as well. Bad circumstances do not always come as a direct rebuke for bad behavior. Remember that. It may rescue you from despair or from unnecessary self-recrimination when you face your own personal Job chapters 1 and 2. And it will, I hope, rescue you from being the kind of sorry comforter that Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz ended up being for their friend. Remember the lesson of Job. Difficult things, at times intensely difficult things, sometimes happen for good reasons to godly people. And conversely, we can say that good things often happen to wicked people. Sometimes, in this life anyway, God allows ungodly people to be healthy and happy and wealthy and so on. 
They are reaping physical and material blessings that they have not actually sown. Job's friends have no answer for that kind of thing. They have no answer for the idea that someone might reap something good or bad that he has not actually sown. But good things often do happen to undeserving people. And if you want evidence for that, just look in the mirror. Or if you want evidence, just look at me. Isn't it always true for us Christians in a spiritual and eternal sense that good things happen to people who don't deserve it? If you are a Christian, you are every single day of your life reaping things that you have not sown. The privilege of prayer, the love of God, the promises of God, the forgiveness of sins, the love of God's people. We haven't done anything to deserve any of these things, have we? No. It was Jesus who, with the shedding of his own blood, sowed each one of these seeds of blessing. And yet we who have not sown them get to do the reaping. You don't always sow the things you reap, good and bad. And that will certainly be true someday when you wake up in a heavenly eternity that you have not deserved and did not earn. So remember that well. There are consequences to our actions. We do reap what we sow, but it doesn't always work the other way around. We do not always sow the things that we reap. Our sufferings are not always the fruit of some specific iniquitous act, and our blessings are never the fruit of some deserved or earned privilege. And aren't we glad that last point is true? Aren't we glad that God offers us blessings, quote, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, Titus 3, 5? Aren't we glad that God does not save us, that He does not forgive us, that He does not call us His children, that He does not make us more like Jesus, that He has not prepared a place for us on high because we have somehow sown enough good to merit reaping forgiveness or to merit reaping eternal life? Aren't we thankful for the gospel? Aren't we thankful for grace? Aren't we thankful that we often reap good things that we have not ourselves sown? And if we are, we should remember that thankfulness when we sometimes reap difficult things that we have not ourselves sown. We should remember God's undeserved blessings that we have not sown when we reap God's unexpected calamities that we have not specifically sown. Even then, God is being gracious and wise and treating us better than we deserve. And so, as Job says in chapter 2, verse 10, shall we indeed accept good from God that we have not sown and not adversity?